Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, welcome back to another episode of The Victory Kitchen. This is episode 11, entitled, Of Course I Can. So as you may have guessed, it is about wartime canning, which is very appropriate to follow up with, um, considering the last two episodes were about gardening. (laughs) But first, I want to do a quick little update. I've talked to you about Postum before, but I was going to give you another update about Postum. Uh, My love of Postum is going strong. And in fact, it's been a great replacement for hot cocoa because I can't really eat chocolate. Well, at least I shouldn't. It gives me migraines. So Postum has been a nice stand-in as the weather has turned chillier. Uh, and I even got my daughter hooked on it. She loves it. <laughs> but I have to remind her she can drink hot cocoa and I can't. So stay away from my Postum. <laughs> um, but I wanted to share with you my recipe that I've been using It is one teaspoon postum, two teaspoons brown sugar. You combine that together because it actually makes the sugar helps the postum dissolve better. Then you put it into a cup or cup and a half of water. Then I heat that in the microwave. Uh, (laughs) I guess I'm too lazy to wait for the tea kettle to heat up. Um, And once that's heated, I give it a stir, add a very generous splash of milk, and it is delicious. So if you ever want to try Postum, I actually got it on Amazon. I'm not sure if there's another place you can get it, but if you can find some Postum, it's definitely worth a try. Okay, so I am a little nervous for today's topic because I think out of all the home front topics, canning, people get a little touchy about this subject, Um, but we'll get to that part later. First, let's dive into canning in wartime. I wanted to first touch on propaganda wartime posters. There are actually not very many canning posters, but the famous ones are pretty much the only ones I've seen and probably the ones you've already seen. Um, There's one with the title, of course I can, uh, or it's the same picture, but with different captions. Another caption is I'm fighting famine. And it shows a lady clutching some jars of things that she's canned. And um, then there's the, we'll have lots to eat this winter, won't we, mother? And it shows matching mother and daughter canning together. And then the last one is, it shows a canning jar with fruits and vegetables in the background. It says, can all you can, it's a real war job. So you can see images of these on my blog. There are also a lot of canning guides, canning books, and magazine and newspaper articles printed to help homemakers learn about canning. Um, There was a lot of people that didn't know how to can, or maybe they're a little rusty. So there were even uh, classes taught. Even the 4-H got involved. I found an entire booklet printed in the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph newspaper from July 15, 1943, called Prudence Penny's Wartime Cookbook and Canning Guide. I have another wartime Prudence Penny cookbook called Coupon Cookery, but the only time I've run into this particular canning guide was in this newspaper. So it's pretty special. Um, It has a lot of neat pictures and recipes. 
So there are five types of preservation that were talked about in wartime. Drying and dehydrating, freezing, because people's freezers were so tiny, they didn't really use it for a long-term freezer storage, so they used community cold storage locker plants. Then there's brining and pickling, winter storage, so like in a cold cellar or something like that, and then canning, or as the British refer to it as bottling, which personally, I think this makes a whole lot more sense because in resources I found, Americans use the term canning for preserving food in reusable glass jars or for preserving food in tin cans. So that's really confusing. Even in the newspaper articles I found, it was kind of interchangeable. Sometimes I could tell they're talking about like tin cans. Other times they're talking about bottling in jars. So for the sake of this episode, I am going to be referring to canning as, you know, canning in glass jars because that's how we phrase it here in the States. So I'm sorry to any British listeners (laughs) if that's going to be confusing, but I just wanted to at least clarify that up front. Now, something interesting I came across, it was this article that had pictures of the different types of canning lids. Now, I do have a, a fair amount of vintage canning jars, but I've never seen anything that explained the different canning lids. So this is pretty exciting information to me anyway. <laughs> um, here are the different types of canning lids. One is a zinc porcelain lined cap with shoulder rubber ring to fit standard mason jars. Number two was lightning type jar, which is sealed with a glass lid and rubber ring and held in place by a wire bale, which is kind of like a wire that clamps down to pressure the glass lid onto the rubber sealing ring. Third is a glass lid and top seal rubber ring held in place by a metal screw band to fit a standard mason jar. Then fourth is a flat metal lid edged with sealing compound held in place by a metal screw band to fit a standard mason jar. This is a description of what is pretty standard today, is that flat metal lid with a sealing compound, which I think is kind of a type of rubber, um, and this, and held in place by a metal screw band. Um, Then fifth are coffee or other commercial jars quote-unquote 63s with a flat metal lid edged with sealing compound bought new held in place by metal screw cap that came with the jar okay so what this is describing is like a regular jar like a peanut butter jar or a miraquip glass jar these are all glass then you buy just the new flat metal lid with the sealing compound and then you screw it on with the jar's original lid I think I'm going to publish a separate article on my blog just about these canning jar lids because I think it's really fascinating. And then you can see the examples that I'm talking about. I just happen to have all of these, which is really exciting. I didn't realize that until I went and searched in my basement. So you can look forward to that in the next few weeks. I'll be posting that as a separate article. All right. And then finally, um, the Ball Brothers, who are famous for their ball canning jars, they ran an ad about their special canning lid. It says, quote, the glass top seal fruit jar cap for home canning was developed as a wartime product to conserve metal. It consists of a metal band, 
glass lid, and rubber ring, close quote. And then it gives specific directions for its successful use, including the warning to not turn the jars upside down to get them to seal, which is an old technique. All right, so now we can move on to canning in wartime. So the overarching subject of this episode. So the biggest question was, how do I get more sugar to can with? And we talked a little bit about this in the sugar episode way at the beginning of season one. So they had their normal sugar ration, which was used for, you know, everyday things. But canning sugar was different. They could readily obtain five pounds of canning sugar using ration stamps 15 and 16 in their ration book one. Each pound of sugar would sweeten on the average of four quarts of fruit. Those coupons could then allow homemakers to can 40 quarts of fruit for each family member. If you wanted to can more than that, you had to fill out an application and tell them a little more specifics like how many quarts of fruit did you plan on preserving. In 1943, they could obtain up to 25 pounds of canning sugar per person from this special application. And that included the five pound allowance for jams and jellies. When made... The application for the additional sugar, either in person or by mail, they had to present ration books number one for all their family members. And the books were returned along with sugar allowance coupons in denominations of one, three, five, and 10 pounds. So later on in the war in 1944, sugar stamps 30, 31, and 32, as well as 40 in ration book four, were good for five pounds of sugar for home canning. These stamps were good indefinitely, which for most of the stamps, they expired, but these were good indefinitely, like I said. Um, At this time of the war, additional canning sugar could be obtained, but up to only 20 pounds of sugar. So notice the drop of five pounds. Much later in the war, there was less and less sugar available for people. With this restriction in sugar, they came up with ways to stretch their allowance The canning allowance provided about half a cup of sugar per quart of fruit preserved. And so I will be sharing some of their suggestions for stretching that allowance. But I want to strongly emphasize that I do not recommend that you follow these suggestions. And I will talk more about that later. All right. So here are their suggestions. You can put up some fruit with no sugar or only a quarter cup sugar and label them as no sugar. Add the sugar to the fruit before heating it for canning as it draws out more of the natural sweetness of the fruit. So you let it add the sugar, let it sit and let it draw out those extra juices in advance of canning it. Another suggestion was to use a thin syrup of five cups water and two cups sugar for use in four quarts of canning. Another suggestion was to can some fruits in fruit juice extracted from less perfect fruits with a small amount of sugar. And I know today, like I like buying canned fruits, like in tin cans um, that are canned in fruit juice. So I know it's something we still do, but it's something that you mostly just get commercially. Um, Another suggestion was in place of part of the sugar, use honey and corn syrup. So for honey, it could replace up to half of the sugar needed. And for corn syrup, it could replace up to a third. Because remember, corn syrup isn't as sweet as other sweeteners. One thing they say to not do is to do not use saccharin tablets in canning as it gives the fruits a bitter taste. They recommended adding saccharin just before serving. 
In another uh, newspaper article from June 1942, it clarified some of the sugar use. It says, quote, under the new regulation, home canners may obtain not to exceed one pound of sugar for every four quarts of finished canned fruit and an additional pound of sugar annually for the packing of preserves, jams, jellies, and fruit butters. One purpose of this regulation, the announcement states, is to encourage home canning instead of preserving, since the amount of sugar required per unit of fruit is less in canning than in preserving. So it took me a second to think through this quote. Um, When you are canning something, you're just canning the whole fruit. Um, So it does take less sugar because you're just using the sugar and juices or some water. Um, But preserving is like making preserves, like strawberry preserves, apricot preserves, peach preserves. So you're kind of making them a jam and they're a lot sweeter than just canning the whole fruit. So that's what their point is, is to, uh, they were trying to encourage the canning of fruits instead of preserving of fruits. The article later urges consumers to make application only for the minimum amount of sugar they needed immediately for the conservation of the spring and early summer fruit crops. (laughs) So that means no hoarding. (laughs) If you'd like to see some images of sugar applications, you can go to my blog where I've got some images from my personal collection. Okay, so another question here is how much did they need to can? If you were trying to preserve enough food for you to have food in the winter time, therefore preserving your ration points for other things, um, how much would you need? And which, and which method should they use to do the canning? So in the book, What Do We Eat Now? from 1942, they say, quote, the answer lies with the family and its mode of living. If the family is small, with little storage space, no garden, and, and all produce must be purchased, the amount of canning will probably be limited to a few jars of favorite relishes and perhaps a few fruit butters. With the larger family, however, who have a garden and ample storage space, then canning may be done on a large scale. Close quote. So that makes sense. Um, if you live in a really tiny apartment in a city, you don't really have a lot of space to be canning and storing it in your apartment. But if you have a home or a farmhouse and you have a large garden, you know, it just makes more sense that you'd be canning more and uh, and you'd have storage space. In a short article in the Long Branch, New Jersey Daily Record in 1943, um, entitled, It Takes a Lot of Canned Food to Feed Family Member, (laughs) it says, quote, the following table shows the quantity of fruits and vegetables canned, brined, dried, or frozen one member of his family will require during the gardenless months. All vegetables, 50 quarts. Tomatoes, 20 quarts. Green leafy vegetables, 6 quarts. Green and yellow vegetables, 24 quarts. Fruits, 50 quarts. Tomato juice may be included here. Apples, berries, cherries, peaches, pears, cranberries, rhubarb, 100 quarts. Jar space could be saved by winter storing of fruits and vegetables that were friendly to that sort of method. Onions, 12 pounds. Potatoes, sweet and white, three-fifths of a bushel. Squash, 20 pounds. Cabbage, 30 pounds. Carrots, 14 pounds. Beets, 6 pounds. Parsnips, 10 pounds. Turnips, 10 pounds. Dried beans, 20 pounds. And dried fruit, 5 pounds. Close quote. So that is a lot 
of canning. If you have even four people in your family, this would be so much canning and so much space. I like that they included not just canning and jars, but the winter storage of vegetables. Because a lot of these, you don't need to waste the space and waste the jar resources you have um, when they could be stored perfectly fine in a cool root cellar. Now, there were a lot of community helps for people who wanted to do their part preserving food for the war effort and for their family when it came to canning. Farm Journal and Farmer's Wife magazine was an amazing resource in doing my research. This magazine was a huge advocate of canning, as you can imagine. It was a means for farm wives to contribute to the war effort, and they could make some extra money on the side by selling their extra canned goods. In the April 1943 issue of Farm Journal, it had an article called Produce and Preserve for Others. It called on farm women across the country to step up and commit to producing more in their farm gardens and increase their canning to help those who didn't have the time or space to do it. It also appealed to their greater knowledge of growing and preserving. In the article, it says, Plenty of people in towns and cities lack the knowledge, skill, and equipment to can for themselves, and often they can't buy food cheap enough to can. Not every family will be able to take on this extra job of producing. Many will do mighty well if they get their own food supply put up this year. Nevertheless, a multitude of good gardeners can do something extra for others. So the point was that farm women had it in their power to increase the food grown around the country and to get it preserved. The article encouraged them that they could do a vitally important job for their country and at the same time make extra money. All this extra canned food was meant to be sold locally within the county or adjoining counties of where they lived. In the article, it also states, if the people in towns of 50,000 and less and farmers could use fewer commercially canned goods, there would be just that much more for people in New York and Chicago. If big enough, this program could make food so much more plentiful that point values of all foods could come down, including that which is commercially canned. So they were putting these ideas out there and encouraging these farm wives, you know, this you could have a huge impact, not just on providing food locally, but by doing that, your local community would need the commercially canned goods less, and those could go to people in big cities where they don't have the ability to can or the space or time to do it. Of course, there were some obstacles to this program, and Editors from the Farm Journal magazine worked really hard consulting people in government and people in various states who had a lot of experience in helping farm women sell canned food. So one of the obstacles was the OPA, the Office of Price Administration. The editors of the Farm Journal called on the OPA to make specific changes. One was removing home canned goods from rationing altogether. So at the time, home canned goods had a ration value put on them. So at the time, if a farm wife wanted to sell her canned goods, she had to take the same amount of ration stamps from the customer that a commercially canned item would cost. This was a big disadvantage because the big brand labels were considered a safer bet. So why would you spend the same amount of ration points on a home canned item? Second, they asked the OPA to change the sugar rules. It says in the article, the present intention is to duck is to deduct 12 points from a woman's ration book for every extra pound of canning sugar she gets. 
The theory is that if she cans, she won't need to buy so much food. And the Farm Journal protested this penalty strongly. In a follow-up article entitled Preserving Gets Underway, the author Beth Cummings tells us how so many farm women around the country had stepped up to the plate as a result of this April article. So this is in the June 1943 issue. And the original article that was calling on farm women to do their part, that was in April. So two months later, they report on what had been done. So that's actually quite fast. Uh, The first one was canning on shares. Vegetables are grown by the farm woman. Part or all of the canning is done by the town woman, either in her own kitchen or on the farm, and the canned food is divided. Farm women had surpluses of produce but little time, while the town women had surpluses of time but little produce. So this arrangement was a win-win. There were also neighborhood exchanges. The article says... The county AAA fieldwoman has a file of town and country homemakers. She knows who will have surplus food for sale and what kind, and who will be wanting to buy it. In a county in Missouri, a newspaper agreed to conduct a victory food exchange column. I actually went hunting for this in the Missouri newspapers online, and um, I didn't find any specific column like they promised, Um, maybe I need to search a little harder, but, um, I did find articles talking about these food exchanges, but I didn't find a specific column dedicated to that. So perhaps it was one of those things that was wishful thinking or, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We can do that, but maybe it fell through. All right. A third thing was neighborhood canning. The article says, Quote, neighborhood canning for school lunches will be unusually important this year since there will be no further handouts of surplus commodities by the government. This canning will be done in school kitchens, in homes, or in community canneries. In Jasper County, Georgia, farm families who have children will grow extra food, can it at the center, and receive school lunch tickets in exchange. Some school pantries will be filled by taking a quote-unquote toll from the food put up by individual women using the cannery, usually one can out of every 10, close quote. This is a really, really cool idea. I found this so fascinating that the school pantry was filled by people using the school to do their canning. Or in some cases, they receive school lunch tickets, which is also a really cool idea. Another thing they found were town-country teams. They were formed by AAA field women throughout Missouri. Each team had five town women and five country women. Together, they picked berries, harvested fruits and vegetables, and canned. They were listed with the county USDA war board and could be called at once in cases of emergency where food might go to waste in peak seasons. So it was kind of a group of on-call women for canning, which is also a really cool idea. And it was a combination of town women and country women working together to make sure that food didn't go to waste. The last thing they talked about was community canneries. And I actually have a lot to say about this because I found so many um, amazing things in my research. In the article, it says that there were already many community canneries, some of them out of high school vocational agricultural departments. I also found a reference that they were sponsored by local offices of civilian defense in cooperation with the county extension services. In 1943, the U.S. Office of Education planned for 3,000 school canning centers to be set up across the nation. 
in this article in the Farm Journal, it says they will be under the supervision of competent full-time managers and will operate 24 hours a day if need be. There will be a small service charge for use of equipment, probably four to six cents for pint cans and five to seven cents for quarts, or in some cases, a toll of the products will be accepted. In that case, if the cans have been furnished by the cannery and the produce supplied and processed by the families, the division is usually 50-50. When the patrons furnish both cans and produce, they leave one can out of 10. Okay, so in this sense, um, some of these canning centers, they did do bottled canning. So they had pressure cookers, they had water bath canners. But then some of them also had canners where they were machines that you could put the hot you know, product into the can and seal it. Um, and these were the tin cans. So this is where it gets confusing because they're using canning to mean both. <laughs> but in this particular case, it's the tin cans. I also found a newspaper article talking about canning centers in high schools. One said it was located in the high school basement, another in the high school cafeteria kitchen. And there were other buildings used as well, depending on the location and, you know, where in the country we're talking about. Um, they just, there were canning centers everywhere. <laughs> All of these had a supervisor to oversee correct canning and local women were encouraged to use the facilities. Many times these supervisors were volunteers. Centers like these made canning possible for those that otherwise would find it impossible to preserve their own food. This is just a really cool service for the community. And I've, just, I've really loved learning about this. In Quad City Times from July 1943, the article was entitled Open Every Day. The canning center is open every day of the week and the pressure cookers are filled twice a day. Patrons wishing to have their fruit and, or vegetables canned, bring it to the kitchen and get it ready for processing. After which, the supervisor takes charge of it and sees that it is processed properly in the cookers. A charge of 50 cents is made for the first 20 jars processed, regardless of whether they are pints or quarts, after which a charge of 3 cents a quart and 2 cents a pint is made for additional quantities. So there is a more detailed example of what happened in these canning centers. Um, and in this case, they were talking about jars. <laughs> in another article um, from Michigan, it said that one community canning center uh, reported over four weeks of five-day-a-week use. And what was canned was 50,818 cans of produce was registered with an average daily output of 2,550 cans. Holy cow. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> they were busy. Busy bees in Michigan canning their produce. Um, another canning unit in Missouri had a food exchange that they operated. Patrons were able to buy, sell, exchange, or advertise for sale any surplus commodity that might be of benefit to someone else. And then another type of food exchange was set up in another Missouri community. Each person brought a can of some type of food which she was interested in exchanging. The article says, quote, all the cans were numbered and each woman drew a number. Lucky number 13 drew a can of pineapple. Another can which caused a great deal of comment was that of a pint of strawberry preserves. The women had much fun from this exchange as well as getting some jars of food which were not so plentiful on their shelves. 
An attractive jar of red and yellow tomatoes canned together were in the exchange, as well as jars of tender young beans, blackberries, pears, corn, and other foods taken from the shelves in the cellar, close quote. And all of the food that was exchanged in that they talk about in this article was home canned, except for the commercially canned pineapple. And I mean, it seems kind of silly, but if you think about it, you know, pineapple is a tropical fruit that in stateside, um, it would be really hard to get uh, since there, we weren't getting any kind of imports like that. So, um, and if they were, it was very, very small um, and would cost a boatload of ration points. So I can imagine lucky number 13, how excited she was to get that can of pineapple. And the woman who donated it said that she, it was just some extra she had and she thought someone would get some pleasure out of it. So that was really sweet of that lady. (laughs) Um, Just, this is really a fun idea. We do similar things like recipe exchanges, or I've even seen like freezer meal parties um, where you bring your freezer meal recipe and stuff. You, you all make your recipes together and then you kind of swap. So we use the same idea today and it's, it's a really fun way to exchange. All right. So now I wanted to talk about the four ways of canning that they used. This is going to be mostly referring to like home canning that you would do at home, but I know that they used this method in the canning centers as well. So here are the four ways of canning, and I obtained this information from the Health for Victory uh, meal planning guide from May 1943. This issue was dedicated to home canning, and they say the first way of canning is pressure cooker. By using pressure, we can attain higher temperatures. That's why we must use it for meats and vegetables. It is the only canning method which provides the 240 degree temperature required to kill botulinus. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but botulism, you don't want to get that. (laughs) It's bad. Uh, Another way of canning was the water bath. Suitable for fruits and tomatoes only. Jars are placed in a container with rack, which is deep enough to permit boiling water to cover them. And I think these two methods are the most common use for today. Um, I use both of these, mostly the water bath, because they don't can a lot of things that require a pressure cooker. The third method was oven or roaster. This method is suitable for fruits and tomatoes. Your oven or electric roaster must be thermostatically controlled. Otherwise, high temperatures will result in food boiling out or in breakage. I have heard of some people using this method today. Um, I am not sure the stance of official food scientists on this method, though. And the final method was open kettle. This is safe for fruits and tomatoes only. But they say that this method was used by our grandmothers with limited success. Food is thoroughly pre-cooked and packed in hot sterile jars. So this method, you you cook whatever you're going to can very well. And then you pack it in your hot sterile jars. And then you rely on the heat of the food to seal the jar. And like it says, it was an old method with limited success. (laughs) I'm glad that they point that out. All right. So these are the four ways that they used for canning. And there were some pretty crazy canning methods back then, (laughs) even beyond these four methods. 
Um, so here's the big question, and this is where we get to kind of the heated discussion. I wouldn't go so far as to say controversy, but um, a lot of people, a lot of people get touchy about this. So wartime canning recipes. The question is, should I use wartime or vintage canning recipes? I was reading in one of my books called Home Canning for Victory by Ann Pierce uh, from 1942. And in it, she warns, quote, there is a military scientific precision about preserving foods. The rules are simple and clear cut, but there must be no cutting of corners. When you go out to kill a germ, you must be thorough about it or it will defeat you. Close quote. This quote really actually made my jaw drop because I actually was thinking of coronavirus when I was reading this. It was just, it was a little haunting to me to read that. Um, but when it comes to canning, this is a very true statement. Canning is a very scientific, precise way of preserving food. And you have to be so careful. Now, <laughs> what I'm about to say, some people might not like, but I'm, I have to say this. It doesn't matter if grandma fed her whole family without any of them dying using those old canning methods. But we don't actually hear about the sickness caused by canning gone wrong back then or not even really much today. Like who wants to admit that? Spoilage was a real concern back then because of questionable canning practices or lazy canning practices that they even then warned against. In a 1944 study conducted by the Homemakers Guild of America, which was a consumer research organization, they surveyed an average cross-section of housewives belonging to the guild. In the survey, they found that in 1943, some spoilage was experienced with 1943 home-packed foods. 49.1% of the consultants reported some kind of spoilage of some product. The great majority of the spoilage was about five jars or less. One huge newspaper article from 1944 was entitled Little Things Cause Failures in Canning, and it gave tips as to how to avoid those failures. In another article, it says that, quote, half of it spoils. The crowning sorrow is that in their haste to can 80 quarts of something at once, they cut a few corners and half of it spoils, close quote. So it was a concern then, and it's a concern now. If you want to do canning safely, this is just one of those times where modern advice is better than vintage techniques. Food scientists have learned a lot about safe canning methods since the 1940s. And just like you might not want a 1940s doctor treating you for cancer compared with a doctor today, we should trust modern science and the huge improvements in safety standards in home canning. In a Mother Earth News article, now this is a modern magazine that's been around for quite some time, and they are a homesteading magazine, and they are actually a really great source for um, things about gardening and canning. They say, quote, safe home canning depends on applying the proper amount of heat to kill microbes, and the amount of heat required depends in part on how the food is prepared, including what sizes the vegetables or fruits are cut into. Tested recipes have been monitored to confirm how much time and for non-acid foods, how much pressure is required for the heat to fully penetrate the pieces of food in whatever size jar is being used. 
older hand-me-down recipes may not have ever been tested. There's just no way to know. Precise acidity and salt sugar levels are also important factors, which is further reason to always use recipes that have been tested by food scientists. Older canning recipes sometimes call for unorthodox practices, such as flipping filled hot jars upside down to allow them to seal, or canning by setting the jars in an oven or out in the sun. Those methods aren't acceptable for several reasons, says food scientist Karen Blakesley of Kansas State University. While alternative methods may cause the jar to seal, Blakesley says they do not guarantee that the food inside has reached the proper temperature for storage. And in an article on healthycanning.com, they they have quite a few really interesting historical canning guides, which I'll have a link to that on my blog. But they also have a warning on their website. They say, as a general rule, canning books published prior to 1994 will not have safe processing times and or methods. This applies to canning guides published by anyone, either state sector or private sector. So you refer to these canning guides only for the purposes of researching the evolution of canning recommendations or just for pure historical interest. So in conclusion... Um, should you use wartime canning recipes to can? My answer is emphatically no. Please do not. Now, you might feel like, well, my grandma's recipe is fine. I'm going to keep using it. Okay, that's that's your prerogative. But I, in good conscience, have to say, please do not use vintage canning recipes. We just don't know the acidity levels, we don't know how well they were preserved. And we really need to trust in modern science. Okay, now that that's out of the way, (laughs) there is some good news, because there is actually some really good advice from 1943. And I'm going to read that to you. I found this in the Des Moines Register from July 1943. The first piece of advice is to lay out your canning program in advance. Plan to can in small amounts, a little at a time, and in the mornings when it's cool. The second piece of advice is select vegetables as they reach the good eating stages. Pick only enough to fulfill requirements of the morning's canning schedule. Discard vegetables which are bruised or otherwise in bad condition. Can as quickly as possible after picking to prevent loss of vitamins, color, and freshness. Two hours from garden to the can is ideal. Fifth is follow rules of cleanliness. Wash vegetables thoroughly and sterilize by boiling. Jars, rubbers, lids, and all utensils and equipment to be used. And finally, your neighbor, your bridge partner, or your Aunt Minnie probably will give you some tips or shortcuts. If you are a beginner, ignore them. They may work well for Aunt Minnie, but they won't work for you. Close quote. (laughs) These are all very good tips for canning from wartime, and we can definitely follow these. Today's cookbook feature is entitled Josephine Gibson's Wartime Canning and Cooking Book. Recipes that save points, nutrition, hints, preserving. And at the top, it also says how to eat well, though rationed. This is a great little book. Mine actually is kind of falling apart. Um, It is a booklet, a very thick booklet with 64 pages. It has a really great contents list. It has keeping your family fit in wartime, 
planning rationed menus, low-point family menus, hearty soups, um, wartime lunchbox, low-point meat dishes, main dishes for meatless days, colorful salads and wartime menus, breads and rolls, wartime substitutions and helps, desserts under the ration system. And then for the rest of the book, it is canning and preserving for victory. So in the foreword, it says, American men are on the march everywhere. So are American women. Just as our soldiers, sailors, marine, and coast guardsmen are changing their habits overnight, so are our homemakers, adapting themselves to changes in the kitchen. American housewives are contributing just as much in their own way to winning the war as the members of the Wax, Waves, and the Spars. Food rationing and wartime food scarcities affect the lives of all of us. How to turn the colored stamps in the war ration book into hearty, healthy meals is a problem for the experienced housewife as well as the new bride. The women of the United States need aid in turning out three square meals a day, and this book will give it. Every woman is planning an active campaign of home canning this season. Preserve and fruit cupboards will be filled as never before with jams, jellies, preserves, vegetables, soups, pickles, relishes, and even with meats and poultry. Every one of these items and more will be acquired by the diligence and hard work of the present sturdy women who live but for one reason, to see victory achieved and the four freedoms upheld. The job of wartime food and homemaking is a complex one, requiring all the strength, ingenuity, and resourcefulness any woman possesses. Our American women are capable of managing any situation as it arises, and the present one is no exception. To help in the important task of keeping America strong through the food she eats, this booklet was prepared. May you use its helpful information on meal planning, canning victory menus and recipes, and suggestions to solve the unusual housekeeping problems of today. I know that was a little, a little lengthy, but I just love all the things that they talk about in here. Um, food rationing and wartime food scarcities affect the lives of all of us. Um, I never thought that I would be able to really feel those words, but <laughs> with um, COVID-19 food scarcities at times, I can, I definitely have a better appreciation for that, just that feeling now. Um I tried two recipes from this book. The first one is hot fudge pudding. And this is a recipe that is actually still pretty popular today, though it might not be very well known. I have seen kind of a resurgence of it. Um, it is a cake that makes its own pudding sauce as it bakes. Ooh. Doesn't that sound magical? <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> it is magical and so delicious. Um, in the subtitle for this recipe, it says, easily made, unusual, delicious, and economical. Be sure to try it. All right. So for this recipe, you use one cup sifted all-purpose flour, two teaspoons baking powder, a quarter teaspoon salt, three quarters cup sugar, two tablespoons cocoa, half cup of milk two tablespoons melted shortening, one cup of chopped nuts. I actually left this out because I didn't think my kids would like it. <laughs> a half teaspoon vanilla, one cup brown sugar, four tablespoons cocoa, and one and three quarters cup hot water. So to make this special cake, you sift the dry ingredients together, you stir in the milk and the shortening, and you mix until smooth. Um, you add the nuts if you're adding them, uh, and vanilla and spread in the pan. And the batter is about the consistency 
of like a brownie batter. And in the dry ingredients, you don't add the cup of brown sugar or the four tablespoons of cocoa. That's separate. Because then you sprinkle that batter with brown sugar and the second amount of the cocoa. And then you mix it in the pan. I thought this was kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, I mixed it partially. But I don't think it matters. Because then you pour the hot water over the entire batter. And then you bake it just like that. You don't even mix in the water. Oh, yeah, the pan, they tell you afterwards, needs to be greased and floured. <laughs> I didn't do either of those things, and it was actually just fine. You bake it in a greased and floured 8-inch square pan in a 350-degree Fahrenheit oven for 40 to 45 minutes. It then tells you to invert squares on plates, and then you dip the sauce from the pan over each. I baked mine in like a rectangular, a smaller rectangular pan, and it boiled over a little bit. So you, I think you definitely want to have a pan with steeper sides. Um, my sides, I think, were just like an inch and a half tall. But if you use an eight-inch square pan, like it says, it should be fine. It really is quite magical because um, you're putting it in the oven thinking, what the heck am I doing? <laughs> but it does make its own pudding sauce. So I guess the technical term is a self-saucing cake, I guess. And it really does make a delicious chocolate sauce. I know I'm not supposed to be eating chocolate, but I did try a small portion of this and even tried it with some ice cream. Oh yes, it was so yummy. Five out of five, you should definitely try this one, especially if you like chocolate. Uh, the next recipe I tried, I actually wanted to try a canning recipe but I wanted to, to be clear, I did not can it because I don't know. I couldn't, I did find a modern version for this. It's called India Relish. And there are some modern recipes for this, but um, I couldn't find one on like an official canning website like Ball or Kerr or anything like that. So um, but I will put the link that I did find for a modern version of this recipe on my blog. But I will be also posting these recipes on my blog. And I think this recipe is definitely worth a try because it is quite delicious. And relish stores pretty well in the fridge, but I, I can't say for how long. Um, so it's up to your own discretion, I guess. I did cut the recipe in half. And the way the portions are, it is easy to do that. It calls for 12 green tomatoes. And this was actually the main reason why I wanted to make this recipe because I have a wealth of green tomatoes right now as the weather is getting cold. And I've been wanting to make a recipe other than fried green tomatoes, which are tasty, but I wanted to try something else. So this was perfect. So it calls for 12 green tomatoes. I cut this down to six, but I'll just tell you the original recipe. Uh, 12 red peppers, 12 large onions, three pints vinegar, two tablespoons whole mixed spices, two tablespoons whole cloves, two cups brown sugar, two tablespoons mustard seed, two tablespoons celery seed, and two tablespoons of salt. You put the tomatoes, peppers, and onions through a food chopper. I used my food processor. And then you boil it for 15 minutes, stirring frequently but gently. Then you combine the vinegar, mixed spices, and whole cloves into it, and you boil... Oh, 
Okay, I did not read this recipe correctly the first time. It made no sense to me at all. I thought you had to combine, put the vinegar in with the mixed spices and the whole cloves and boil it all together for five minutes, then drain to remove the spices. But I was like, that makes no sense because if you drain it to remove the spices, it's still chunky relish. <laughs> I feel so dumb now. <laughs> you just cooked the vinegar. Oh, gosh. Uh, that would have made it so much easier. <laughs> so you cook the vinegar and the whole mixed spices and the whole cloves. And you boil that for five minutes and then drain to remove the spices. Oh, my gosh. That makes so much more sense. Um then you pour that strained vinegar over the ground pickle, add the brown sugar, celery seed, mustard seed, and salt, and boil that for 15 minutes, and then you seal it in hot sterilized jars. Um, it says this recipe may be doubled, but I cut it in half. So um, it says this is a favorite recipe, and it's very easily made. It makes a delicious relish, which is true. It is very delicious. Um, when it came to the whole mixed spices, I relied on a British recipe for mixed spices, but it was very hard to find them whole. The recipe uses allspice, cinnamon, nutmeg, mace, cloves, coriander, ginger. And I had all of these, but some of them were ground. Um, so I just went ahead and used those. Um, you boil that with the, vin with the vinegar. And it does make a very delicious relish. And I actually used a whole jar, like I had a jar in my fridge of it on some pork. Um, and that was very, very tasty. I'm not very imaginative when it comes to using relish. So I need to do some research and um, figure out how I can use this up. If you're a big fan of relish like I am, I've already got some beet relish and dill relish I made in the fridge. <laughs> now I have some India relish. Um, and you know what, when it comes, when it comes to the name India relish, I think it's pretty much just like a chutney. That's kind of what it reminds me of when I eat it. But either way, it really is so yummy. So I recommend this too. I, I guess it's you could probably cut it into a quarter of this recipe as well. That'll take a little more math, but I think it'll be worth it. And you can find both of these recipes on my blog, along with pictures of the things I made. Today's story highlight is by Dorothy Pedersen Nelson, and this is an excerpt from her memoir, Teenage Memories of the Homefront. I found this on the Minnesota Historical Society, and I am using the story with their permission. She says, I remember rationing. It did not seem to be a great hardship, though I think my mother was exceptionally talented at stretching food and making do. She and dad planted a victory garden on a plot about a mile from our house. Mother and sometimes dad would take the bus down to the garden, hose and rakes in hand, and spend a few hours tending the garden. In the fall, they would take the car to bring home the harvest. From that garden, mom canned hundreds of quarts of vegetables. She also baked all of our bread, made jams and jellies from any fruit that could be picked. We got eggs and some meat from the farm, so we fared well and the rationing of sugar, meats, and some other items did not greatly change our fare. Meals were simple, and we mostly ate all three meals at home together at the family table. My dad would say the Come Lord Jesus table prayer before every meal. When in school, we kids would usually walk home for lunch, which might be cornbread and syrup, Spanish rice, a homemade soup, biscuits and bacon gravy, 
and some leftovers from dinner the night before. Everything was used and very little was thrown out. I think rationing was harder in households that did not grow any of their own food. Ration cards were issued to each family member. These were coupons that were torn out upon purchase of a rationed item. If someone were to come and stay for any length of time, they would be expected to bring their ration book. Some items, particularly meats, could be bought on the black market. That was under-the-counter kind of selling that would not require coupons, but which would be more expensive. Meats particularly were available black market. This was probably more true in agricultural areas, where food from the farms could be slipped into the city to a profiteer without much danger of reprisals. Housewives saved grease and turned it in at the butcher shops. Papers and old rags were saved and turned in to be reprocessed. Old metal pots and pans were turned in, and the metal melted down to be reused. As I write this, I realize it was an early form of recycling. My girls' reserve group, something like the Girl Scouts, was sponsored by the local YMCA, developed a project where members would collect grease, paper, metals, clothing, etc., and turn it into the collection centers. I had a big box in the front porch where I collected those items. It was messy. Um, when I was reading this story highlight on their website, I, I was especially excited that she talked about canning, and I wanted to include this story for this podcast episode. Um, I really love that the details of how they would take the bus down to the garden with hose and rakes in hand and use the family car to bring the harvest back. Um, I think that takes real dedication. I mean, I have a hard enough time gardening in my own yard and remembering to weed, like taking that time and effort. But when it's like a community garden or somewhere from at a distance, that takes even more dedication. So I really admire their hard work um, and all of that all of those things that they're able to can. Um, I have tried to find this memoir, but I did not have any success. But I hope to be able to find it someday because I'd really love to read the rest of her teenage memoirs on the home front. I'm going to leave the link for this so you can read it in whole. Like I, I only read a part of it. I will leave that link on my blog where you can also peruse the Minnesota Historical Society's website and all their awesome resources they have available there. I wanted to give them a huge thank you for letting me use this on my podcast. All right, well, that's it for this episode. If you or your family have American Homefront stories, I would love to be able to share them on my podcast. To share your story, go to victorykitchenpodcast.com and click on Share a Homefront Story. We have lots of fun on Instagram where I share recipes, cool stuff I find in the course of my research, and behind-the-scenes photos. So come on over and give me a follow. My handle is Victory Kitchen Podcast. And don't forget to leave a review for Victory Kitchen on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.